This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to episode 68 of the Grace Enough podcast. If you're new here, I'm your host, Amber Cullum. If you've been around for a while, I just want to say thank you for listening week in and week out, for connecting with me on social media, for every email that you send, for every face-to-face conversation that we've had, or maybe a text message that you've sent me. I'm incredibly grateful for your support. Today, we are continuing our conversation on Sabbath. If you didn't get the opportunity to listen to last week's episode with Dr. Matthew Sleeth, I do want to encourage you to go back, search episode 67, and listen to what Dr. Sleeth has to share about 24-6 lifestyle, that Sabbath rest. Today, my conversation with Pastor Doug Gamble is all about the heart attack that set him on a path to freedom from workaholism. That path to freedom included him searching out and reading about and learning about intentional practice of Sabbath. Today, Pastor Doug joins me and he shares some of what he's learned as he has begun to practice intentional rest on a weekly basis. Listen to what Doug has to say about God's renewal through rest. People, what they miss from Sabbath is this renewal that can only happen in the presence of God, in the presence of family and friends, whoever you Sabbath with. There's something that's let loose from the well of God's spiritual resources that will not come to a busy Christian that refuses to sit still. After listening to my conversation with Doug today, I hope you are encouraged to begin discovering ways you can introduce intentional rest into your week. Please come back on Thursday as my husband and I will be putting out a special episode, a bonus episode, to talk about ways that we have introduced Sabbath into our weekly routine. We talk about challenges we've faced and continue to face, successes we've had, and just answer some common questions regarding Sabbath rest. Good afternoon, Doug. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today for the Grace Enough podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Amber. It's a delight to be with you. Yeah, we've had a few little uh, minor challenges, but (laughs) thankfully nobody listening knows that um, Skype and Zoom have been in conflict with one another. Maybe that's me, but... Yeah, we're we're now at Techo level 302. We've made three (laughs) or four versions of a savvy on uh, Zoom and Skype and among other platforms. As we get going, go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell them a little bit about your family and what you do. I'm a pastor of 40 years now. I've been at Crossroads 28 of those 40 years. I'm from Indiana, born and raised there. Met my wife in college at Terre Haute. Did a lot of work from Indianapolis to Chicago area, Indiana side, Illinois. Then went to Kentucky for grad school and had our first son before we went to grad school and our daughter secondly. And then we were in South Bend was our last church before we were hired to come to Crossroads. And that was in 1992. And we've been here ever since. Those kids are now grown, and one has three children out in California, and the other one's working on it, trying to have some children right here in the zip code. Um, I told my son-in-law he could uh, live anywhere he wanted in Wake County. (laughs) (laughs) No more kids on the West Coast. (laughs) That's right. I was going to say, once you get kids that are really far away, it's just so hard. I mean, we don't live near either one of our families, and sometimes I just miss when we were in Florida close to Sam's family. Yeah, it does matter, actually. And um, 
I'm able, I took a job, uh, or not really a job, it's a volunteer thing. I serve on a board partly because they meet in LA twice a year and gets me there so I can then take personal days to drive up and see my grandkids. Yeah, now what part of California do they live in? Right in the smack dab middle. I mean, east, west, north, oh. south. They're in Porterville, just north of Bakersfield, south of Fresno, right okay. where all the fruits and nuts are grown, strawberries, oranges, and almonds. At least they're not in one of the biggest, most crowded cities in the whole state, because I think yeah. that it, it's just hard to live in some of those areas, particularly right now. Yeah, I have to come and go through them, but it's kind of nice when I get over the, they call it the camel's back and head down into that gorgeous valley, valley. which is the biggest garden in the world. Yeah. And it's beautiful and smells great. And so I don't mind the drive there and back. Yeah, well, and then when you were in, how long were you all in Kentucky? Just for grad school? We were there. I took the long way through. I was working my way through and, yeah. and adding for our family. So I worked my way through seminary. We were there about four and a half years. And along the way, I helped okay. plant a church. I joined the staff of a church plant, which was the church who had encouraged me to go to seminary and gave me a scholarship. They planted a church in Lexington outside of Wilmore, Kentucky. Okay. So we served there. Um, I volunteered there for about a year as I graduated. Then I came on staff and served about two years. And it was from that church that I went to South Bend. Was there almost three years planning to plant a church in Indianapolis. I had my plan all along, kind of ministry, grow myself up to some larger church mentors. Had two great mentors, maybe three really. And then was planning to plant a church when Crossroads got their hooks in my jaw and pulled me down here. I gave up the idea of being a senior pastor and did small groups and assimilation, but it was probably a smart thing. And for this is off the beaten track, but I'm really much more of an entrepreneurial pastor. Most churches don't know what to do with me. I'm kind of apostolic, think more about the kingdom than the local church, though. I'm a local church pastor through and through, but I'm always looking outward. So getting the missions role here back in 2000, when Chuck became our senior pastor, was kind of like finding my sweet spot. Mm. And I'm pretty much still there. That's awesome. That's so great. And Raleigh, I mean, it's not a bad place to live, right? No, it's not. (laughs) Everyone was envious when we were leaving the snow. We left ugly snow and landed and there was flowers in the local gas station corners. Back home, it was salt and dirty black stuff on piles of snow. So it was quite a contrast when we came down that first right? March and April to interview. My wife was ready to stay, go back and get our stuff. I'll stay here and start looking for house. Yes. Well, I mean, we, even the transition from Florida to here, some people are like, oh, it was so, wasn't it so sad to leave Florida? And I'm like, no, after growing up in Kentucky, coming to a place where there's four seasons and you, even right now, I'm like, yes, we're all shelter in place, but I can walk out my door and see every color in the rainbow because of the flowers and spring. It's just a gorgeous place to live. So I'm grateful to be here for sure. But let's get into um, our conversation today. And as we start to talk about Sabbath and just kind of how that came about for you, you know, take us back to how you came to know Jesus. I'm very fortunate. My parents come from Christian families in Harlan County where church was not exactly random, but small one-room churches. Mm-hmm. You know, you go when you can. My parents were from coal mining families yep. and poor and uh, not the best educated. Religion is very experiential down there. You don't have a lot of trained clergy. Uh, that's not de- depreciative. That I'm really grateful for the authenticity of it. So I had strong Christian roots on both sides, but we had the typical dysfunctions that come out of that region. And so um, my dad got saved. My mom and dad got saved right out of high school. I had an older sister about 22 months ahead of me. And then my twin sister and I were born when my dad was 21. And when he was, when I was three months old, he got saved and then led with his brothers and then led my mom to Christ. And they really took, they got into a church right away 
got discipled well, stayed with that church when they moved from city to city. The pastor would call the pastor in that denomination, and they'd track him in. So we hip scopped so cool. from Indianapolis to Pine Village up by Lafayette and ended up in Hammond, Indiana. And we were in a little free Methodist church that was mainly Southern people from Tennessee and Kentucky who had yeah, moved north to work in the factory. So it felt like family. I tell people as a mission pastor, I'm bicultural. I was raised in the north by Southerners. <laughs> So I'm very comfortable in the big city north, and I'm quite comfortable in the south where they say y'all. That's right. Well, it's interesting because I was talking to a Fuller Seminary professor, Joel Green. You may know Joel. I don't know. But anyways, same thing, like went to Kentucky but grew up in West Texas, and we were both talking about that. It didn't matter if you went to a Methodist church or a Baptist church where I grew up, where you grew up, where he grew up, because this small town country feel it's just more like religion is kind of an experience yes there are people who are truly walking with jesus but most people just go to church yeah at least then well and we're so back then you have to realize we were 14 15 hours from being able to connect to family people yes long distance a lot so we became family our church Mm -hmm. for me church's family is very real and authentic i mean we literally call people uncle and aunt Bill Gaither thing we call brother and sister around here from Indiana. That was us. Yeah. I thought I thought all these people at church were my relatives. No That's one told right. me because I was there at three years old and up till I was about eighth grade. And so that was a wonderful experience in many ways, 100, 150 people and uh, very experiential. But we had a couple of really well-taught pastors uh, mm-hmm. who did some good Bible teaching training, Sunday school. So I I walked the aisle one Sunday night. It's my first recollection of uh, praying. I was taken seriously by my pastor, a guy named John Ferguson. My dad came forward. But I was, uh, you know, it was a holiness movement. They scared the hell out of me. So every chance I could get out of hell, I was raising my hand going, I want to make sure I got that ticket. Um, me too. <laughs> so I had good experience. I about When I was 12, I met a really neat college professor who came to our camp, and I really became fascinated with the Holy Spirit. What's that all about? And read his book, The Holy Spirit and You. And about a year into that, I really had, I think, my first true come to Jesus were um, Romans, it tells us, but his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. And I had a powerful experience that just kind of changed me forever. I've always had a deep assurance of my salvation, even when I was not walking as close as I should. I've never been able to enjoy going out and being very backslidden. It just doesn't work for me. It's easier to, it's easier to be righteous than you know, now my wife thinks I'm pretty obnoxious, but that's my, that's my character still being refined and sanctified, but otherwise, yeah, just to, had, the world doesn't have much of the Lord to me. I'm a church brat, and now I'm a pastor. I love the church. I'm quite familiar with all of its flaws and faults because we're not perfect people, but I do love the church, what it can do, what it has done. I still think it's God's best plan on earth, and it's what I'm working to help our church be all it can be and help us plant and help other churches that are already out there to become fruitful and multiply because a little about over half, about half the world still needs a church that they can go to. They still need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So we could even hear just your passion for this. There was a point in your pastoral life years ago where you were just burning it at both ends and worn out and yeah. wrote a book about, you know, the heart attack that saved my life. So share with us a little bit about that. What happened during that season in your life? Well, it was a long time coming, uh, which I didn't understand until I got into the um, recovery, which was considerable. I had to deconstruct my life and reconstruct it at age 50. But people had known for a decade that it had gotten to the point that it was managing me and I wasn't managing it. But no one knew how to help. People prayed for me. Chuck, Pastor Chuck was incredibly gracious trying to help me. Religious addiction is not like drugs, alcohol, where you're, you know, getting drunk, going into, you know, 
people like when you do when you work That's like right. a, a crazy man for doing good. And yet it has the same toxic effect. Mm-hmm. Workaholism, like most other things, involves lying and stealing. In this case, you're lying and stealing time that should be spent with God, with your wife, with your kids, and you're not practicing good boundaries like we've learned are so important. And so what happens is you become you're like a wheel that's terribly out of balance. And everybody who's on the wrong end of that wheel gets beat pretty bad by it, and yourself included. I remember feeling distinctly toward that heart attack that I was on a ro- was on a treadmill and you know treadmills have that little thing you put on you can hold on your wrist you jerk it and it'll stop that's right there was no stop button on my life and um the Lord finally intervened because I had been praying for some time when I had listened to some tapes about it I was seriously trying to figure this out but I needed an intervention from God and that happened on um December 31st 2007 the day before 2008 began Wow. And I fortunately had it in the morning rather than at night, where it's where it kills most people when they go to maker at night, they go to sleep That's and right. don't wake up. But I woke up and just felt horrible. I rode my bike down to the church to do some insurance paper that had to be done by the end of the year. Could not get my bike back home up Millbrook Road. Finally remembered, remembered I'm oxygen starved, you know, my hands falling off and called my wife. She came, got me in a car and my daughter was an MA and she said, I had a heart attack. I said, I don't know. I was in my jammies in laying down. So she made me take an aspirin. We didn't call EMTs like we should have. We, I laid down in the back of the car. We went up the street to do, and some young guy, I wish I knew who he was. I'd go back and kiss him, but he, you saw them checking me in. I couldn't remember my social security number. He said, Hey, we'll take care of that later. And he threw me down, put me on a KG and hit the fire drill. And they were all over me for the next two hours. Wow. And draining into my system. And because it was new year's Eve, the protocol here for stroke and heart attack is to do a catheterization and try to bust up any blockage in the right. mind or the heart. So they kept me on Drano while they fixed me for Rex because Rex had a surgeon 24-7 at that point. So I didn't know. I was kind of conscious but kind of loopy. They told my wife, you better say goodbye. We don't know if he's going to make it or not. And I didn't learn this so much later. And that's the sobriety that checked in. So they went over there. And they took me in the back, did the catheterization. And by then, that nurse from Duke was still just getting it as fast as my pulse would allow. And it evidently broke it up in time. They didn't have to do any kind of stents or anything. So I kind of was fortunate. But it was quite a scare when I came out. I'd had a false alarm three or four years before that. Uh, and I had a Christian cardiologist. So I went back to him. And he's the only guy that calls me by my first name, Norman. Norman Douglas Campbell. Everybody knows me as Doug. Norman, I'm going to help fix your heart, but you and your elders are going to have to totally change your life. You can't be coming in here to my office at 49 as a missions pastor with a heart problem. You're not living right. Uh. (laughs) He's proud of me now, but it's been a long time getting my act together. He really pushed me, had me take a first course on stress, understanding what it was. And the big breakthrough that he gave me was he was he was spiritual and medical. And he, so he didn't let me play games, spiritual talk. He was a very mature guy, elder type guy over at Providence church here in town. But he helped me realize you created this and you can uncreate it. Mm. In many ways, it was very empowering to discover what stress was, discover stress was making me do unhealthy things, but I could stop it. And when I learned, I could, that when I started living, basically creating boundaries around my time and energy, other people respected it. I was totally shocked because all of my life in needing to get approval that I should have been getting from God, I tried to get from others. And I found that by working and working, working. So from high school forward to be accepted, I basically would not disappoint anybody. And I never learned the boundaries of when to say when, how to say no. And it had really bad effects on my kids. I didn't do, I've missed opportunities with my children because I was busy away working. Same with my wife. 
Now I've been able to get forgiveness from them and I've worked hard as you can imagine to try to make it up, but there's some things that you can't go back and undo. And I'm pretty passionate about trying to help workaholics I see now because I get, I can look in their eyes and usually I can, I can get, get them uh, pretty emotional pretty quick. Cause I know that fear of not mm-hmm. knowing how to get off, not, all they know is to go forward and they don't know where the exit strategy. And I try to plead with them that there is one. And so I'm kind of committed to helping people, especially younger, not get into it. And older people who could be ready to blow a gasket to please stop and consider that this isn't the way we were meant to live. Mm. And so um, after that heart attack, I spent about 18 months going to a dear friend who was a really smart guy, worked a lot with trauma guys. He was a counselor for a Christian agency that we supported. And I'd heard him preach and got to become a friend with his in Europe. And I told Kathy almost prophetically, if I ever check myself in, I'm going to HUD. Well, I did. <laughs> we spent three days where they went through some assessments and he helped our marriage, helped me, answered wow. a lot of questions, gave me three or four books to read, sent me home to read my life around truth and sanity. And in many ways, uh, that our topic today is Sabbath. And the reason Sabbath has become so meaningful to me is it's really not well understood in the Protestant world. We kind of think mm-hmm. Sabbath is you go to church on Sunday, then you watch football, or you go out to the beach, or you do whatever you do in the summer or in the winter. That's right. And I've been discovering that Sabbath is, as Jesus said in one of his parables, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And what that means is we need it more than we realize. And yeah. we tend to think it's a duty. It's not a duty. It's, it's a one day in seven to live differently mm-hmm. so that you can be differently the other six days of the week. Mm-hmm. I had never even understood that in seminary that I, I've given you a link to share with your, your podcast uh, from Tim Keller. It's called Work and I don't have a title in front of me, but essentially he, I've listened to that sermon three or four times and it's so powerful to have the, the Sabbath broken out is what it was meant to be. And then one of my small group leaders put me on to a guy named Dan Allender who wrote a book on Sabbath, which is really more deep. And and he's a great scholar as well. So I have listened to that sermon many times. Sometimes I do it as an anecdote when I think I'm starting to spin back into a 12 hour life cycle, which isn't good. And that book is so deep and rich. It's not the kind, it's a little bit like a devotional book. You need to read through it, but it's one you need to keep handy and dog ear and learning to live Sabbath is not something you're just going to learn in 40 days. I've been doing this. I'm well into my second year of seriously having a day other than Sunday, which is a work day for me to be my Sabbath. And believe me, this coronavirus has really messed me up for the last six weeks. I'm missing my Sabbath and I'm trying in the midst of so much need out there that I want to meet to, to realize if I don't take care of me and Sabbath is part of taking care of me. When I Sabbath, there's more of me on the other six days. Mm-hmm. If I don't Sabbath, and I can understand once in a while, but you know, my team knows I've been saying, whoa, whoa, I can't keep up at this pace, not just because I'm 62, but because I'm not who I want to be when I'm here. Mm-hmm. And what makes me who I want to be really present, make wise decisions is I'm prayed up, thought up, rested up, and really realize it's not about Jesus. And I need to be a broker and a conduit. Yeah. And I can't do that when I start shifting away from Jesus and onto me and, and what I can do. And it's very tempting to do that in ministry when there's right now such a huge amount of need. The thing that I have learned most recently in my attempt to begin really consistent Sabbath in our family is this idea of restraint and how restraint is such a good thing. It's not, you know, God didn't rest because he was weak. Instead, 
you know, he is just restraining. He's holding himself back. And sometimes when we don't rest, it can be a very prideful thing too of. Truly is. Well, I mean, if I don't work, it's not all going to get done or, you know, God can't do it all. <laughs> We're and not God saying does, that, but ultimately. God doesn't get tired. So why does God rest when he, when he is all powerful and doesn't get tired? Like we do, we do need rest. That's right. We, we need rest every 24 hours. That's so right. So why do we need this seventh day? And I enjoyed preaching it last year when Ed, Andy was oh, on sabbatical, you know, we did so it again. And I, I raised my hands. I want the Sabbath because not because I have it mastered, but because I'm so passionate that we rediscover Sabbath living. And Tim Keller points good way. That's a good sermon that people get a chance to find the link and listen to it. It will really set you up well. He has some really good advice and he's such a good practical theologian. Mm -hmm. It'll be deep teaching, but simple and easy to get a hold of like he does for that New York group. And he said something profound in there that I think you're hinting at, Amber, that our culture doesn't tell you. We're in a 724 culture that if they say, should you be satisfied? They go, no, don't be satisfied. That's right. We have no culture that knows how, what the word margin even means and limitation and self-restraint. Forget the word sacrifice. It doesn't exist unless you're a pro athlete and you're sacrificing to become the king of the world. But in any case, the Lord built self-restraint into us as a way to release some of the better part of us. Mm. And so one of the reasons people, what they miss from Sabbath is this renewal that can only happen in the presence of God, in the presence of family and friends, whoever you Sabbath with, there's something that's let loose from the well of God's spiritual resources that will not come to a busy Christian that refuses to sit still mm -hmm. and be quiet and to allow reflection, to confess sins, to give praises, to worship privately, to enjoy nature. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, you know, for me, I, I could have compassion fatigue constantly. And since I've been sad, because, you know, I deal with some of the hardest things in the world. I read news that will just make you cry. Right. How do I do that day after day and not lose my mind? Well, one of the ways is healthy boundaries. I understand why God's put me in this role. And he's given me some capacity now to look at the most awful things in the world. And while my heart is touched, I've developed the capacity to say, to, well, what's the best thing we can do? How do I not be overwhelmed by this moment, but right. in this moment, be a broker, a prayer broker, a resource broker, a volunteer broker, an agency connector. And so understanding myself and who God has me allows me to say, I'm not going to give every cup of water, every loaf of bread, give every dollar, be there. But what I can do, I can do. And I'm blessed to be at a wonderful church with incredible people and helping to channel those people toward good, reliable, worthy yeah. places to invest time, money, stuff. That's a great joy to like I can sleep at night knowing our tribe of 5,000 has many good places locally and globally to invest with a clear conscience. And that gives me a great joy to be the one trying to do the vetting so our people don't have to do the, all of that. They have good choices they can have confidence in. That's right. Well, and something that you said, speaking of the sermon that you gave during, gosh, I guess it was the summer. Was it last summer? Goodness, where is the time yeah, gone, Doug? I know it. <laughs> It goes fast um, when you get older. The uh, odometer just speeds up. I've said to my friends, once my oldest son hit third grade, I don't know why, I, but it just went from like slowly creeping by to I feel like you blink your eyes and another school year's over. But that's I a whole it. another yeah. conversation. But something that you said, <laughs> my wheels were already turning, and then you preached that sermon, and I won't be able to quote it verbatim, of course. But something that you said that really impacted me and sent Sam and I on much more of a consistent journey to implement Sabbath into our life was the idea of well, how 
hard it was for you at first and you kind of felt like you were missing out on stuff, but after practicing it for some time, you could actually look out and see your heart actually hurt for the people that were just running around like crazy and working themselves to nothing. I mean, just to death. And their kids, you know, there's so many things more for people to do. What Tim Keller said to this New York crowd, you don't go to New York to be average. You go there to be the best. So, you know, they're probably the biggest workaholics in America is in Mm -hmm. LA and and New York. And he said to them, listen, if you want to really Sabbath, I'm just going to tell you straight up, you're not going to be at the top of your field probably, but you'll be healthier than those people. And when they're crashing and falling down, you'll at least be at a place of where God wants you to be. And God might surprise you and still raise you up. You don't have to be, you don't have to climb to the top of the heap to be where God wants you to be. And I think, you know, for the business person, it's money is the measure. For athletes, it's the games and the wins. And each of us have these sort of things we measure by. And I think for me, and this is the big secret, if people know the secret of Sabbath, when you Sabbath well, what God gives me on my Sabbath is so much better than what I could do by working another 12 hours, even to the applause of people. And I love people at Crossroads. They're great to me. I could not want better elders, better senior pastor. My colleagues right. Crossroads is one of my favorite places in so many ways. And I get affirmed there tremendously. But 12 more hours of that is not worth what I get from well done, good and faithful servant or the whisper of God or God to crack open a passage and show me something I've not seen and 60 years yet of reading scripture. Yeah. That's pretty precious to feel like I've prayed a powerful prayer for someone where anyone else knows to be prompted to send a text to someone who needs it, that I would not know they need it unless I'm listening and God prompts. Those are precious times. And I'm telling you, once you get the habit of Sabbath, as soon as you miss a Sabbath, you miss it. It's like missing a meal. It's like, man, I got to go through a whole nother six days before my Sabbath. I, you know, it's not an easy thing. And I, I want our people to have that because I do believe what I learned as a workaholic, we are trading busy for stuff that's not worth it. And the things that are truly valuable, we will find at the end of that rainbow, it was the wrong rainbow to follow. Mm-hmm. And when we follow God's will and allow Sabbath happen, God really is rich. Uh, the scripture talks about, and Jesus talks about it, I give to who I feel like giving it to. There is a sense when God says, if I can trust you with something, I'll give it to you. If I can't, I love you, but I'm not going to give you pearls and riches if you're not really ready for them. Mm -hmm. And I believe Sabbath puts us in a place to be ready to hear God, to accept like, it's enough. Three stores are enough. I don't need the fourth and fifth one. I mean, to be practical as a church, we don't need seven, eight, ten campuses, maybe three, maybe four. And and if God says four, we'll go to four. But we can also take time and get there when God wants us. Like we've just had to back off our Nightdale campus because right. of the coronavirus. doesn't mean it won't happen. It just means it's not right now. But uh, I just think the ability to know when is enough, enough, and let growth come in our family. I mean, the growth that families can have by having meals together versus running to one more thing for the kids and eating fast food in the car that doesn't get digested before they run out and do what they do. We are really not helping our kids, not helping them with grandparents when we don't have time to just be. And one of the things I know when I'm having a good Sabbath is there's time during the day when I'm tempted to feel like I'm wasting it. Mm-hmm. I know I'm really on Sabbath because I can walk around and just enjoy my azaleas before they, you know, they go away. I can see my budding flowers and rejoice. I can 
bend over and pull a weed and, and ask God to help me grow grass as well as he grows weeds. And I have this conversation <laughs> with God, looking at the turtles sunning themselves because I'm here during the day on my Sabbath when they pull out and sun themselves. And I watch the hawks go by. There's a, a connectedness to the moment that is so precious and it does sort of gear me down. So the other six days, I'm much more present to people and I just wouldn't want to trade that. And I do believe uh, there's more I could get done, but I have learned to contentment. It's not about how much I do. It's about learning to do what God requires of me to do. Mm. And I think our culture, even our Christian church culture, and I can be guilty of this and pray that I'm not, we can so get motivated even about ministry that we can be unbalanced. I think fully devoted living is sustainable, but it's not sustainable the way a lot of hyperactive preachers and churches teach it. And I think it's important that while we teach the generic fully devotedness, that we get grander for a mom of three kids who's nursing and pregnant with the third child. That looks different than a retired guy who's got right. 12 hour days and is self, he's got, you know, passive income or a young guy who's coming out of prison or just go down the list of That's all right. we need to be appreciative of what it takes for whoever we are to find that rhythm, find that Sabbath rest, because out of that Sabbath rest and that whole passage about the rest of God in, in, in Hebrews you have to Sabbath for a while before you start understanding what God's talking about. That yeah. is a deep well of great wisdom. And there's another book I forgot to send you a link to. I'll try to do it real quick. Ruth Haley Barton was up at Willow oh, Creek yes. and Ruth was Haley caught Barton. up in that whole Willow Creek. You know, Willow, yep. I love Willow and all they've done. I'm so sad for the fall of Bill Hybels and all that. But Willow did a lot of great good in the seeker movement. And God challenged her right when she was yeah. right in the midst of that to stop. She left went to another school, changed her degree, and then now has a website and is developing spiritual direction, we call it, basically formation, formation. how to help mm-hmm. form the soul. She has a book on uh, Invitation to Solitude and yes. Silence. That's a transformative book. I'm ready to read that book again because it was so powerful. Very practical works on the back. She's a great writer and a great example of someone who walked away from what she had. She was there to be there and show the boys she was ready. And God whispered to her, unfortunately, she listened, and she's having way bigger impact now. And I'm yeah. so glad she listened because with the implosion at Willow would not be a great platform for her to be at now. And yet she's having a wide impact by having listened to a spirit, get off the gravy train of what God says. This is what people think is successful ministry. She listened to the Lord, and now yeah. she's having an impact way beyond, not because she left Willow, because she found God's perfect thing for her. That's she right. She listened at a level that you have to be slow and quiet enough and willing to, to ignore some of the voices around you. Well-meaning voices, usually or nearly always, right. But God's voice is different than my wife and my father's and my colleagues. Sometimes it resonates the same, but sometimes there's things only God will tell you if you're quiet enough to listen. Mm -hmm. And I think many Christians, if I'm honest, when I asked them last time, they really heard a true word from the Lord. They can't tell me. And I know it's because they're too busy. I love to hear you say that because that brings up, I want people to know that when you start practicing Sabbath, it's not like you just wake up and you say, yeah. okay, I'm going to feel great all day because I'm resting. It yeah, does require like a, some intentional, absolutely, some preparation. And there will be times where you're like, oh, I don't like this. And it's really because we're just so uncomfortable with quiet and doing nothing. And then, and I, I want people to know that on my Sabbath, I don't do nothing uh, in, in the typical way. 
what I do is allow myself to do things that are life-giving. For instance, if I was a full-time fisherman, I wouldn't want to fish on my Sabbath. But I have a pond behind me, and on my Sabbath, fishing might be a very transformative, recharging thing. Um, I love to read, and I read in my work. But there's things I never get around to reading. I read it on my Sabbath. There's um, yeah, long running exercises, you know, most yes. of the time I have to hurry up and get my exercise done. Not on yes. my Sabbath. I exercise till I feel like stopping. That's and if right. I want to stop in the middle, it's like, I'm going to yes. stop and have an extra bottle of water and then take a slow round because I don't have to be anywhere right now. That's right. That in itself, the things that happen because you are not re- driven by the clock, I don't keep, I have a pattern, but not a schedule on my Sabbath. Mm. So there's things I want to get done. And I'm also open to God surprising me. I often take my wife to lunch because it's hard for me to do during the work week. So there's time for her. There's time for extended quiet time. I do some worship I normally don't always get to do in my quiet times. I exercise. I play in the yard. I play with my cats. I sometimes have gone and done good deeds for people. Someone will, I'll get a prompting of the Lord and I'll go next door and check on a neighbor. So it's not like I'm sitting in a, you know, lotus position, just meditating all day. I am free from the tyranny. I typically, my staff knows, I typically say, don't call me unless it's a real emergency and be planned and then be prepared to step in and cover for me. <laughs> That's right. So um, I'll pray. And then tomorrow morning, I'll jump into the crisis. And, and that tells our people that, you know, with 14 pastors, I'm not the only pastor that can answer a crisis. And for me to be what they need me to be in that ER room and that funeral and that near-death experience, they want a Sabbath-rested pastor mm. who's listening to the Lord and will be able to channel a word from the Lord for that moment. And that's why I cherish being able to deepen my own spirituality, walk what I talk. So that's when right. I'm with people, I'm not reaching for something, but the well is full and something is already there that I can share with them. And I think if we get a church full of people, if we even get a minority of the people in our church living with it would be absolutely transformative. Some of our programming, I would pray someday might move toward being helpful to make Sabbathing more meaningful for people. And, you mm-hmm. know, we have people work 12 hour days, like my daughter, other people who own companies and feel responsible for 20 employees or six or whatever. Yep. It can be so easy to say, how do I manage my life? And what happens? Your business is managing your life. It's hard for the self-employed, the hourly worker, Many of them, if they're at the low end, they can't live on what they can make. So they're working two jobs. So That's they're right. their So if you're at the top, you think you have to work 60, 80 hours. If you're at the bottom, you can't make enough. The enemy has really worked. He will still kill and destroy. I don't care if you're rich, poor, middle class. The enemy's got it out for you. And he has found a way to help each of us be pulled away. Basic things God expects and wants us to do because there is blessing there. But we're not used to it. We didn't grow up with it. We've kind of grown away from it. And so, like you say, when you begin the Sabbath, prepare for a test of your wills to mm. lean into some things you haven't done and to give your soul time to thaw out and arise and awaken to spiritual formative space. Yes. And most of us, you know, we give a little bit during the sermon. We might give a little bit during quiet time and that's it. But we're mm. made to give a whole day to that kind of form. That's right. That's right. So those other little things are like little vitamins you take, you know, the real meal deal is on the Sabbath when you just become totally into, you know, you do work on a hobby, you pray, you worship, you read scripture, you rest, you sleep well, you, you get past the tyranny of the clock. And you have to say, no, you have to kind of put an insulator around you too to be a good Sabbath keeper. And all of that 
can make you more valuable the rest of the week. I think what we have to challenge our friends to do in ourselves is the Hebrew children, you know, when they were asked to eat unclean food, they said, well, can you test us? Let us eat our clean food against yours. And if you're right and we're wrong, then we'll have to concede. But if we're right, then let us keep eating our, our dietary laws. Well, sure enough, God honored them for their dietary laws, and they were as healthy as any of the other folks. And so we need to, we need to do that with Sabbath. Let's learn. Let's try Sabbath for a year. Yes. Let's see. And tell me if you test ever it out. go back. <laughs> well, and it's interesting when you said that um, you would really miss you know, if you get in this routine where you're not really doing it, you really miss it. Because I was talking to Dr. Matthew Sleeth. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he wrote 24 6. Mm. And it's all about his experience. Like yeah, it's all about his experience. He was an ER doctor, wasn't a believer, oh. picked up the Bible in the ER, read through the whole thing, completely changed his life, became a believer. And Oh, it, it's an incredible story. But he said that exact same thing. He was like, when you get to a point where you're Sabbathing well, you are sad at the end of the day almost to see it go and not in a bad way. I got to wait six days yes. before I come back to this safe space with that's Jesus. Exact, I mean, that's the exact words that came out of his mouth. And I just talked to him last week. So it's really awesome to hear you say that because it's clearly... If we trust and just do it, you will see the fruit of it. Well, Amber, I'm delighted that someone as young as you, and it seems like everybody I talk to is as young as you, unless it's <laughs> my seniors I take care of at Crossroads. Um, I'm glad to see younger people taking it because I was 49 before I dealt with just the sins of the fathers and the things that happened in my journey that I had to sort out. No blame or shame. I, and then Sabbath is something I have wrestled with and tried to understand and about three years ago, really began to seek it. And then a year ago, January, this is, I'm, I'm halfway into my second year of seriously trying to keep a Sabbath. And if I lose it to comp and find another day to Sabbath, as I'm getting into the Sabbath, what it means to have a Sabbath day, right. um, I can switch if I have to. That was a big freedom too, because that's right. You know, it's not a legalistic. Yeah. I don't feel bad working eight hours on Sunday. It's my, it's my work day. There's a lot I can do in my role on Sunday. And I try to Sabbath on Monday. That's a lot of pastors take that day off, but for me, it's a Sabbath day. Yeah. Uh, some guys take off Friday and Saturday. I often work on Friday because my Sabbath is my day off and uh, my kind of a work day, but not really. And right. then we, our elders try to have us take two days off. It's pretty hard. And so I work most Fridays and I take Saturday off as my mow the lawn, get a haircut day. That's right. Day off. But I really feel like people need to find a Sabbath. The younger are, the better, because I do think there's a cumulative benefit to you and to your kids, the impartation to your kids of trusting in God and being renewed by Him. When God's people are in tune with God and hearing what He has for them, it will save us from a day and age of spammers, scammers, and people who want to do anything to twist us to get our time, our money, our attention, our everything, God has a different plan for us. And if we're not regularly listening to that plan, we kind of are like a yo-yo pulled back and forth trying to do good, but we don't quite do enough to get it. And then we start feeling, well, maybe this doesn't work or I'll, I'll just try harder. And so people can easily in the disciple life conclude, well, I guess you'd have to fake it till you make it. Or if this doesn't work and I just become cynical. And neither one of those are the right response. That's right. The right response is to really allow God's will to rule your life. And that takes some time. That's but right. as you faithfully do it, it can become a lifestyle. And the lifestyle is a lot harder to break than a 
passing fad and so forth. And as much as I love Sunday morning, and I do, I wish for our people to have Sabbath. And for some of our people, Sunday may be a bad day for them to Sabbath. They may be working half the day. They can squeeze church in and maybe they do a group that night, but they work four hours. I know people are doing that. But I I plead with people that I know seem to work all week long. I say, when are you going to find? There's got to be a place. Most of the staff come in Monday and work hard. They count nickels and noses and make sure the program's ready for Wednesday night and could work all day Monday, but for me in my role, much of my role is not as event driven like the rest of the staff. So many who do Friday, Saturday, they're, they know Sunday's ready. Friday and Saturday is a day to recharge and they come to Sunday and start over. For me, Monday That's is right. a good day to end because my time horizon is over a year to two years with global and local missions. Yeah. But whatever works out, and that was a big insight from Tim Keller is pick a day that God, you can faithfully Sabbath. And I'm still learning. I, I have, I'm anxious to read through some of these books again. And one of the things I do on Sabbath is read formation books. I don't read books I have to be reading for my job. And there's That's a lot right. I read for my job. This is a day I read what I want to read. Yeah. And what I want to read, how to deepen my life in Christ, how to prepare and have such a deep well that people will seek me out, particularly my kids and grandkids. I want to be there for them and others who are fatherless and need a father figure. This is when I'm building up my spiritual fatherhood. Mm. It does help at work, but it's also helpful for people out there in the kingdom I may not know, a neighbor, someone I meet in the grocery store. And it's a great joy for someone to come and tap into me and to know, wow, if I hadn't been Sabbathing, I would not have been able to minister that way. Mm. It's a deep delight, a a deep joy. And I really want that for all my staff, brothers and sisters. I do think in the prime of our career, it can be hard if we've not really learned to do it. Um, And I don't think one way works for everybody. I think Tim Keller's book, or Tim's sermon and um, this book talks about finding how you Sabbath based on your your stage in life, your your yeah. temperament, your spiritual gifting. And so I'm still learning a lot, but I'm I'm learning good things. That's about right. It. It's been meaningful for me, I have to say. Well, Doug, I thank you so much for just your leadership at our church and for the way that you have spoken to our people about Sabbathing and just so many other things. So. Thanks so much for being here today. I'm really grateful. Yeah, it was a joy to be with you and I hope people will enjoy those resources as well. Okay, Grace and F gang, if you would like to find the links that Doug just talked about in today's episode, go to graceenoughpodcast.com. In the upper right-hand corner, click show notes. In the search bar, you can type episode 68 or Doug Gamble. And on that page, you will find the link to the Tim Keller sermon he mentioned and the books that we discussed during today's episode. If you have any questions, will you hop over to Instagram or Facebook, search Grace Enough Podcast underscore Amber and ask away. As always, I love to connect with my listeners. And don't worry, if I don't know the answers to your questions, I'll find someone who does or I'll simply say, I don't know. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.